I'm a complete sucker for a sunset. I'm just a complete sucker for a sunset. I think they are absolutely glorious. I probably would be a sucker for a sunrise, but I don't think I've ever seen one. Um, that's not quite true, but uh, that's a, I, I don't know if you can see that. It's almost, you almost would need to turn out all the lights and then it wouldn't even do it justice, right? I took this up at uh, Smith's Lake a couple of years ago on holidays. About this, it was just after Ancon, actually. It was just... I just stood there and just took photo after photo after photo after photo for about 20 minutes. Um, and I just took a lot of photos. And I'm just a complete... I just think they're glorious. And uh, I've got this sunset as my sort of desktop wallpaper just on my computer just because I think it's just amazing. I also um, have a friend who once showed me uh, through his telescope, because he was into astronomy, he once showed me the planet Saturn. It was only about two years ago. I'd never seen Saturn through a telescope. Hand up if you've ever seen Saturn through a telescope. Let me tell you, it is astounding. There is this thing up in the sky, a planet with rings, and when you look at it, it's got rings. <laughs> it's like a... It's real. Um, anyway, that was pretty glorious too. And uh, as you heard this morning, we've got five children, Jenny and I, um, which is a great blessing of God, and, and holding a newborn child. That is amazing. That is glorious. Uh, and once I was there with an a EU student in a cafe in Glee. We went to get a coffee one day, and this is a while ago, and... Person, the, the, the woman barista was just pouring out the milk into the coffee and it was amazing. <laughs> I, have, I don't know what it was, but that, that day, the way she poured milk <laughs> was like, it was elegant, gracious and glorious. It was like, I'd never seen anything like it. It was just... And ten years later, he and I still talk about it when we see each other. Do you remember that day when that cafe? That was just a... <laughs> glorious. Absolutely glorious. Well, tonight I want us to reflect together on the most glorious reality. The most glorious reality. It leaves milk pouring for dead it far surpasses even the most glorious sunset. It is more glorious than holding a newborn baby. I want us to reflect together on the most glorious reality, that is God himself, as he reveals himself to us in the Christian scriptures. And in particular tonight, we're going to explore and try to grasp that relationship between the spirit and God, which we sort of saw in that drama so marvellously mangled in that drama just then. We want to grasp that reality. What's the connection between the Spirit and God? And to do that from a Christian perspective, our launching point out on this journey tonight has to be the person of Jesus Christ. And from there, we're going to strike further out into the glorious and deep waters of the Christian understanding of God as Trinity. And then we're going to come back into shore 
and we're going to look at some important implications for how we think about and relate to the Spirit in our own day and life. So uh, if you've got your book there, page 9 is where we're at. Now, the Spirit of God is not a New Testament phenomenon. God's Spirit was active pre-Jesus in the Old Testament as well. We saw a little bit of that this morning. In particular, there is a vein, a vein of Spirit-empowered leadership amongst God's old covenant people, the nation of Israel. Although, frankly, they often seem to be a completely crazy, mixed up and sometimes downright dodgy lot of leaders. But they're empowered by the Spirit nonetheless. First you have, there on the outline, you have Moses and the 70 elders. Let me read to you from this passage from Numbers 11. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and spoke to Moses and took some of the Spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And when the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not do so again. Two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other called Medad, and the Spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, son of Nun, the assistant of Moses, one of his chosen men said, My Lord, Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. God pours out his spirit here on the leadership, on the elders, to equip them to assist Moses in looking after the people. Spirit was given by God as a particular empowerment for that particular leadership service. A bit later on, when Israel had entered the promised land of Canaan, God raised up a series of judges to lead his people. And the first judge is a guy whose name most people forget. His name was Othniel. And he sets the pattern for all of the rest of the judges to follow. And you can see his, everything the Bible says about him is in these three verses. Judges chapter 3, verse 9 to 11. But when the Israelites cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the Israelites who delivered them, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave, gave King Kushan Rishatham of Aram into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Kushan Rishatham, so the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. That's a pretty short CV, really, for 40 years of leadership. But the point in the history we have in the book of Judges is that Othniel sets the pattern, he's the paradigm for all the judges that are going to follow him. So pretty much every little phrase, every detail in those couple of verses is very significant. And it's the spirit of the Lord that comes on Othniel and empowers him to deliver Israel from her enemies. And that pattern continues right throughout the book of Judges. So when the spirit of the Lord comes on Gideon, Gideon sounds a trumpet that calls God's people out to make war on the invading enemies. And later on, Samson, who is one very dodgy leader, he's both awesome and dreadful all at once. Samson is attacked by a young lion. And we read in Judges 14, verse 6, the Spirit of the Lord rushed on Samson and he tore the lion apart barehanded 
as one might tear apart a baby goat, which is very familiar to you, obviously, because you just tear apart baby goats all the time. But to tear apart a lion, that's bit, like that's hard. That is a pretty dramatic spirit moment, isn't it? There's some real spirit action, if you want to get into the spirit. And it sets a pattern for Samson's life where the spirit rushes on him and it gives him an almost superhuman strength which he uses sometimes to deliver God's people from their enemies. And we could go on through the kings and through the prophets. I mean, read the book of Ezekiel. That man was tripping. That prophet was tripping out on the spirit. He was literally, because he's taken on spirit journeys. He's picked up and taken, you know, like it's all... My question is this, isn't this all, frankly, a bit wacky? See, my guess is for most of us, we haven't had experience of the Spirit quite like some of those. I know good Christian brothers and sisters who've had visions. Some of my good friends who've heard voices. One who actually argued with God's voice. In, anyway, that was sort of interesting. I know others who've prophesied, but not many who've ripped apart young lions in a feat of superhuman strength. Should that sort of spirit experience be yours if you're a Christian? It's the same spirit of God, why not? And that raises a really important question, really important question. What are we meant to do with these historical accounts in the Bible? Are these narratives normative for us today? That is, do they describe what ought to be standard for us or not? Or are they just some sort of one-off wackiness, you know, unique and unrepeatable? Let me say, working out your answer to this question is vital because there's a whole lot of spirit action in the Bible, especially when we get to the Gospels and Acts in the New Testament, and we want to know what to do with it, right? It's clearer in the explicit teaching parts of the New Testament, say in the epistles, but the challenge actually comes, I think, often with the historical descriptions, the narratives. Are we meant to do anything with these other than just sort of try to remember them for really lame games of you know, Bible trivia? So I have, I have four points to help as a guide here. You might like to jot them down. Four points of what, how we're going to, what should we do with Bible narrative. First is this, what not to do, what not to do. Here's what not to do when stuff happens in the Bible. Don't photocopy them and don't forget them. What I mean is we're not just meant to photocopy whatever happens in the Bible as though God automatically, and in every case, means that that's to happen for me. Just because the Spirit rushed on Samson when roared at by a lion doesn't mean that if there's a lion on the loose, what you should do, Taronga Zoo, is call a Christian. No, you call a dude with a gun so that they can shoot the thing. You don't call a Christian to rip it apart barehanded, right? We're not to photocopy these events, but neither are we just to forget them as though they're totally irrelevant to my life today. There is a way in which we can too quickly, I think, write off events described in the Bible and not see their relevance for today. So it's that relevance that we're trying to find, right? There are truths to learn in the narrative from the historical account. We don't want to miss that. 
Now, I want to probe a bit deeper into this. There's the second sort of point is what the Bible isn't. There's a reason we're not to photocopy and we're not just to forget, and it's, it's to do with the very nature of the Bible itself. See, the Bible is not a simplistic how to live life or a simplistic what to do manual. That's not how the narratives actually work in the Bible. The end of every historical account isn't now go and do likewise because the Bible isn't that sort of simplistic how-to manual. It has narrative, it has poetry, it has proverbs, it has law, visions, apocalyptic, it has letters written into very specific situations, it has parables, it has genealogies, it has songs. That's why we don't automatically just go and photocopy the events it describes into our own experience because it's not that sort of simplistic manual. Similarly, though, it's not just a bare historical chronology. It's not just a mere interesting history timeline. See, as evangelical Christians, we believe what the Bible teaches about itself, namely that all Scripture is useful for teaching and rebuking and training in righteousness. All Scripture. God has preserved his written word for us for our edification. So we dare not just write off the historical accounts without grasping their relevance, because God's trying to tell you something through it. Okay, well, if that's what not to do, and that's what the Bible isn't, what are we to do? Well, let's start. What is the Bible? The key point to realise is that whilst there's all sorts of different genre, different types of writing in the Bible, what unifies the Bible is an overall trajectory. An overall trajectory. There is an overall shape in the Bible to which each narrative fits in. And it's only by grasping the overall trajectory you're going to be able to interpret any piece of the story appropriately. Now, hopefully you started to map out some of that trajectory today in your review group. Remember, we saw this morning that the trajectory is the movement from life in God's presence, Garden of Eden, through the reality of death and God's absence, kicked out of the garden because of sin, but then back to life in God's presence in power, which is where God is taking the whole story. That's sort of the big overall trajectory we're talking about, that we're trying to flesh out as the week goes on. So that's what the Bible is. What then should you do with Bible narrative? Well, I've got two rules of thumb for you to try to help you. First of all, because there is a trajectory in Scripture, before you ever make the leap to today from whatever you're reading, you have to see where does this event fit into that trajectory within the Scripture, right? Always place it in the larger trajectory. But secondly, because we believe that the Scripture is the Word of God, that God doesn't contradict himself, whatever application you draw out of that narrative needs to fit with the explicit teaching, the didactic material that's taught in other places, like, say, in the New Testament epistles or other places where it's very clear this is what God wants you to do. It has to mesh together, it has to fit together. So I pick a non-spirit example for you. In the Old Testament, God's people are told to keep the Sabbath, that is Saturday, and do no work. What would a just photocopy approach look like? Well, we just say, Christians don't work on a Saturday. But actually, when we read the Old Testament law within the trajectory of Scripture, 
we read that in the New Testament, Jesus brought an end to the old covenant of which the Sabbath law was a part. So rule number one here stops us applying the Sabbath law to today. Because within the trajectory of Scripture, that covenant has come to an end. Furthermore, thinking about rule number two, in Romans 14, Paul says that some Christians observe one special day, some sort of Sabbath, and others regard all days as the same. And he says, let each be fully convinced in their own mind. That is, it doesn't matter. Explicit teaching in the Bible saying it doesn't matter about the Sabbath. So what are the application you're going to draw from the Sabbath law in the Old Testament? It needs to fit with that. So then, let's go back to those crazy, somewhat dodgy, spirit-empowered leaders in the Old Testament. Should their experience be yours? Well, follow rule number one. Look to place their experience of the Spirit within the trajectory of Scripture. And what, you do, what you'll find when you do that work is that there are actually two other great spirit figures in the Old Testament. But you never see them. You just see their shadow. The two greatest spirit figures in the Old Testament, you just see their shadow in the Old Testament. Because the arrival of these people is foretold. It's sort of like they're just standing around the corner and the sun's falling so that you can see the shadow in front of you, but you can't see the person. Who are these great two figures, spirit figures? Well, the first shadow figure is the spirit-anointed Messiah. We read one promise of the future Messiah this morning from Ezekiel 37. Here's another one just in front of you on Isaiah 11. Notice here, though, as I read it, the special empowerment this Messiah is going to get from God's Spirit. We're looking for the connection, right, with the Spirit. A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was King David's father. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. and With the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. This Messiah, empowered by the Spirit of the Lord, when he comes, he will bring justice and righteousness to all of God's creation. In his rule, he will bring down the wicked and he will defend the poor and the meek. That's the first great spirit figure. The second great spirit figure to come in the Old Testament is the spirit-endowed servant. Several passages in Isaiah talk about this somewhat elusive figure, the servant of the Lord. He's usually known as the suffering servant because some of the passages, particularly Isaiah 53, describe the terrible suffering that this servant of the Lord will undergo in order to save God's people from the penalty for their sin. But here in Isaiah 42, we have a servant passage, which I want us to look at. Have a look. Isaiah 42, 1 to 7. The Lord says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. 
he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his teaching. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people upon it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I have taken you by the hand and kept you. I have given you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So this servant of the Lord is going to be endowed with God's spirit. He'll establish true justice in all the world, much like the spirit-empowered Messiah. His teaching will be, we read there in verse 4, the hope of all the nations. It's going to be universal. His ministry will be universal. He will be a light to the nations to bring them up out of darkness. Now, here then are these two great spirit figures to come in the Old Testament. The Messiah and the servant. Now, here's the key, key point. What we see promised here in the Messiah and the servant is the culmination of all of those spirit-empowered leaders in the Old Testament. Moses, the judges, the kings, they all come to a climax in these two great spirit figures. Because these two great spirit figures will establish God's purposes, not just in Israel, but in all the world. There's a trajectory here, right? But there's more. When we get to the New Testament... What we see is that in Jesus of Nazareth, the promised two great spirit figures of Messiah and servant coalesce. They come together and find their identity and completion in one person, the historical Jesus of Nazareth. So you can see that fantastic diagram there in your book. Makes it all so clear to you, I hope. Anyway. So, how does this apply? I'll tell you. Before you go and try and rip a young lion apart in the power of the Spirit, a la Samson, you've got to realise Samson's experience of the Spirit rushing upon him was a pointer to the reality of the Spirit-empowered one who was to come, namely Jesus. That's the shape of the trajectory. So where all this drives us is we have to go to Jesus if we want to understand what spirit empowerment is all about and what it's for. So, let's look at Jesus and the Spirit. Now, I've divided this into three sections. We're going to do a big overview here. We're going to look at all of Jesus' ministry. His earthly ministry, his heavenly session or heavenly rule, and actually stuff that hasn't even happened yet. We're going to look at it all in about the next 15 minutes. If you've got some water, I'd take a drink now. (laughs) Okay. Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, I'm not going to do a thorough treatment of all these passages here. I've put them there, as I said this morning, as a permanent resource for you. But what we're going to try and do is get an overall picture of how the Spirit in particular was involved and related to Jesus' person and ministry. We're looking for the relationships between Jesus, the Spirit, and 
If we're going to do that, then we have to involve Jesus' heavenly Father as well. So we're really looking at the relationship between Jesus, the Spirit, and the Father in this sort of section. So that's what I want you to be on the lookout for. Every time you see Jesus, then circle it. Every time you see a spirit, underline it. Every time you get a sense of the Father, put a square box around it, okay? Just get the relationships happening, okay? So let's start at the beginning. The spirit-enabled conception of Jesus. The spirit was intimately involved in Jesus' whole earthly ministry, going right back to his very conception. Luke chapter 1, verse 30. The angel said to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. Right? Is that ringing any bells? The throne of his ancestor David, right? That's clear reference here to the promised Messiah, the one to come from David's line. Verse 33, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. That's like straight out of Ezekiel 37 from this morning. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. Here is the mystery of the incarnation. That God, the eternal Son, took on flesh. He was incarnate, which just means literally was enfleshed as Jesus of Nazareth. He's both fully human, you will conceive and bear a son, and fully divine. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. This was a birth like no other, which marks this person out as holy, that is, separate, different, completely set apart from all others. But the truth that Luke highlights is the role of the Holy Spirit in the incarnation of the Son of God as the man Jesus. The historic Christian creeds put it this way, he was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became man. Jesus coming into the world was through the direct intervention and action of the Holy Spirit. But did you notice, as I encourage you to do, that there are at least three different people at work here. There's the Lord God, verse 32, who's also called the Most High, there's Jesus, identified as Son of the Most High, or Son of God. And then there's the Holy Spirit, who's identified as the power of the Most High. Three related persons, the Most High, the Son of the Most High, and the power, the personal presence of the Most High. Or there's the Lord God, the Son of God, and the Holy Spirit. There's a distinction here, but also a relationship and a unity. They're all working together. Now, we're going to see that in all the passages to come. I'm not going to labour the point every time. I just want you to notice it here in the first one, and you'll be able to trace it through in the others. But the Spirit was also at work through and in Jesus' ministry. So look at Jesus' Spirit-empowered ministry. First, at his baptism. Now, when all the people were baptised, and when Jesus also had been baptised and was praying, the heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form like a dove. 
And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. Notice the three people, again, operative there. Voice from heaven, Jesus, and the descent of the Spirit. This, though, is all about identifying Jesus, making it clear to everyone who was there, and actually clear to you and me too, who are reading the account now, exactly who Jesus of Nazareth is in God's plans and purposes. The voice from heaven, the descent of the Spirit, all are trying to say to you, this is the promised Messiah and suffering servant. Now, you might not have picked that up, right? But it's there in the voice, in what it's said from heaven. You are my son is a quote from Psalm 2 verse 7, which is about the Messiah. And the end of the, what the voice says from heaven, with you am I am well pleased, is from Isaiah 42 verse 1, the servant of the Lord passage. So in the one sentence, the voice is saying, here is the suffering servant and here is the Messiah in this one person of Jesus. And look, the Spirit is descending upon him. All of that Old Testament expectation, the great two shadow figures to come at Jesus' baptism, bang, revealed. This is the guy. Here he is in your presence. And so the Spirit comes and descends on Jesus as empowerment for his role in God's plans as Messiah and servant. Now, interestingly, the very next thing that Luke records following Jesus' baptism is his temptation in the wilderness. Have a look there. Luke chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit now, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Now, in that one sentence, there's a whole heap of biblical freight. It helps us understand, again, who Jesus is and what he was doing under the plans of God. Here's the Messiah, the Son of God. We've just got that from his baptism. Now doing and being what God's people, the nation of Israel, didn't do and couldn't do. See, the wilderness was the place where Israel had turned away from God, where they'd succumbed to temptation. And like the Israelites, Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Spirit, because they were too, led in by the Spirit, the presence of God. But unlike Israel... Jesus, who's empowered by the Spirit, Jesus withstands the temptation in the wilderness. And so under the power of the Spirit, Jesus does what God's people had completely failed to do. See, Jesus is the new Israel. He is the new people of God. He's doing everything they couldn't do. And straight on after the temptation, Luke continues. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, he went to the synagogue on a Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him 
Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What's the Spirit doing here? Well, notice there at the beginning, verse 14, 15, the Spirit is empowering Jesus for his teaching ministry, for proclaiming the coming kingdom of God. And this particular Sabbath, he goes to his hometown, he reads Isaiah 61. Here is Jesus' announcement of who he is. He says, I am the promised Spirit-anointed bearer of good news from God. What's the good news he's bringing? Release for the captive, sight to the blind, freedom for the oppressed. Interestingly, it's not just news about liberation. Jesus' announcement of freedom and release and sight is declarative. He doesn't just say, oh, this is the case. When Jesus says it, it becomes the case. Sort of like when I conduct weddings, I say, I pronounce you to be husband and wife. At that very moment, it becomes true because of the words in that particular setting. Well, when Jesus announces the kingdom, his very announcement of it brings it. It's declarative. What was the point of the miracles that he was doing? Because he did go around and do amazing healing miracles in the power of the Spirit. What was the point of that? Well, certainly those miracles were experiences of God's grace and kindness and power. But within the totality, I think, of Jesus' ministry, those miracles are best understood as partial sneak previews. Now you say, well, come on, like, he healed Lazarus, man. Lazarus was dead. He was lying in a grave and stinking. He was a corpse. And Jesus called him out. And he walked out alive. That's a pretty big miracle. And you're saying, that's a partial sneak preview. Yep. That's a partial sneak preview. That's what these miracles were. They were, if you like, just a sneak preview of of what reality will be like in the kingdom of God when it comes in its fullness. Because for Lazarus, it was partial. He died again. But in in the coming kingdom of God, when you're raised... You're raised forever. So they were partial sneak previews, or if you like, they're sort of signs towards the greater reality to come, which was the kingdom of God that was going to be established through Jesus' own ministry. You can see there Peter's summary about Jesus' ministry in Acts 10. He was known as this this healer who was bringing in the kingdom of God. But it wasn't just his healings and his miracles that were empowered by the Spirit. It was also in his death and resurrection. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while you know that the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, that's, you know, you're, you're right at the core here, right? That's real centre stage for the ministry of Jesus. You're absolutely right. But what we often don't realise is that the Spirit was at work in Jesus' death and in his resurrection. Have a look there. You can see it here, uh, first of all, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to worship the living God. Jesus offered himself to God, it says there, as the appropriate purifying sacrifice on our behalf, and it was offered through the Spirit. The Spirit's there at work in the very death of Jesus for our salvation. 
when we're talking here about the death and resurrection of Jesus, this is the absolute bedrock of our faith, isn't it? These, this really is the glorious heart of the Christian faith. And as, it's important to realise that here is the objective work of God to fulfil his great purposes, right? We said this morning what God's doing is trying to recover his purposes for creation. Here is the objective work of God to do that very thing in the death and resurrection of Jesus. In his, re in his resurrection, you'll see there from Romans chapter 1, verse 3, the gospel concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Jesus' resurrection is affected through a powerful working of the spirit. Now, uh, the big summary point, I guess, there for this whole first section of Jesus' earthly ministry, how would you summarise all of this, the Father, Son and Spirit? I've got it there in that little diagram that what you've got is the Father sending the Son to do this, this work of the suffering servant, of the Messiah, to do this work in the very power of the Spirit. That's a way of sort of summarising Jesus' whole earthly ministry. But I just want to pause there for a moment and just, just, just say two things about Jesus' resurrection. I could go on for a long time about Jesus' re resurrection, how important that is. In fact, we did that a couple of years ago. It was called Annual Conference. And we just talked about the resurrection for a very long time. And it was glorious. But I just want to say two things here out of this verse. First is this, and it's relevant to spirituality. The resurrection, according to this verse, Romans 1, 3 to 4, the resurrection identifies Jesus as God's Messiah and the Universal Lord. It's there in that last phrase. He was declared to be Son of God by resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So the resurrection of Jesus, and by which I'm talking about there, a real bodily transformation. His dead body transformed into a real, physical, imperishable, eternal body. The resurrection of Jesus is the historical foundation of the Christian faith. Because, the, because Jesus' resurrection shows that Jesus really is Christ and Lord. And therefore, it shows his relevance and authority over all people. So if you take away that first domino of Jesus' resurrection, then we have no historical sure basis that Jesus is who he says he was. But the resurrection identifies him as the Christ and Lord, which means... He has authority over all people. How is this relevant to spirituality? Well, I said this morning, how can you tell which spirituality is the right spirituality? Which is the best spirituality for you? Well, the best spirituality for you is whichever one is actually true, because you don't want to give your whole life up for a lie. So the best spirituality for you is the one that's true, and the one that's true is the one that's founded on this guy who... God said, he really is at the centre of my universal plans. How can you know that? Well, I raised him from the dead. That's why the resurrection is the key to working out which is the right spirituality, which is the true spirituality in this world full of different ideas. Come back and ground it in the resurrection. 
Because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus has not been raised, then you are completely wasting your time with the Christian faith. In fact, people should have pity on you for what you've given up to be a Christian if Jesus wasn't raised. It's that central. That's the first thing. Second thing, the resurrection means that we have a Samson. The resurrection means we have a Gideon. We have a Moses. We have a spirit-empowered, living leader. It's Jesus. It's not me. It's not you. It's not any Christian in the world. They're not the spirit-empowered leader of the age. Jesus is alive. Christianity isn't an idea. It's not a philosophy. It's trust in a person who we say, he's alive now. That's what Christianity is. Trust in the living person of Jesus, who we say is Lord of all. We have a spirit-empowered leader today. It's Jesus, the risen Jesus. Okay, well, what about after Jesus' resurrection? We're going to speed on here. Jesus' heavenly session, or with sort of the, the theological term, it just means his rule, his, his rule post his resurrection, his reign. So this morning, God had promised to pour out his spirit into the hearts of his people from Ezekiel 36. This was the great hope for God's people. They were looking forward to the day when God would fulfill all of his promises particularly this promise that are pouring out of his spirit. We saw it even there in Moses in the very first passage we looked at today. But before Jesus had started his public ministry, John the Baptist had been on the scene and John the Baptist had created an incredible stir amongst God's people. There was a great hope at the time that maybe John the Baptist really was the Messiah and people thought about that at the time. But John actually pointed forward saying, no, it's not me, there's another baptizer who's going to come after me. I baptize with water, but this next baptizer is going to baptize with the promised spirit. That's the Messiah. He's the one you should be looking for. Well, Jesus came, identified at his baptism as the Messiah, does great ministry, dies for the sins of the world, raised to be the living Lord. After he's been raised, he says to his followers, what John said back then, the baptism of the spirit, it's about to happen. It's about to happen. Just hang on. It's about to happen. Then you get to Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, and Jesus pours it out. He pours out this promised Holy Spirit that God's people have been waiting for centuries to come. And it happens on that particular day of Pentecost. Notice what Peter says on that day. Acts chapter 2, verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you both see and hear. So Jesus, the Lord and Messiah, pours out the promised Holy Spirit that he has received from the Father. This is a huge deal. All of that Old Testament expectation fulfilled at that moment as Jesus pours out the Spirit he received from the Father on his followers. Now, if you go on and then read some of the passages I've put down there, it can be a bit confusing when you stop to say, well, hang on, who actually pours out the Spirit here? 
I'm going to leave you to read through those different passages, but trying to synthesize them together, I think the way you can probably best say it is the Spirit comes from the Father, but He does so at the request of and through and in the name of the Son. That seems to be the relationship that these passages paint. The Spirit comes from the Father, but does so at the, the, at the request of and through in the name of the Son. And it's worth pausing just for a moment and asking, well, whose Spirit is it then? As I read through Romans 8, 9 to 11, I've got a job for you. I want you to identify with a pen. It's always good to read with a pen. I want you to try to identify whose Spirit is it? Whose Spirit is it as I read these couple of verses? Paul says, but you, to the Christians, are not in the flesh, you are in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God dwells in you. Right? If you're too asleep, there was the first one, the Spirit of God. Okay? Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, that's a hint for you, does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. Seems to be when you look at that, that passage, just those couple of sentences, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of the Father and the spirit of the Son. There is a profound unity here, so much so that if Christ is in you, the spirit is in you. Or if the spirit is in you, you can say Christ is in you. There's such a unity here. So a summary... The Father sends the Spirit through the Son. But that's not all. The end of the ministry of Jesus and the Spirit. The story doesn't stop at the pouring out of the Spirit on the followers of Jesus. The Bible gives insight into both what the Spirit is doing in the life of the believer, but also the greater goal that God has in mind. First of all, the Spirit glorifies the Son. This is what the Spirit is doing. John 16. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Here's the bit I want you to notice. He will glorify me. That's what the Spirit will do. He will glorify me, says Jesus, because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit's role is to glorify Jesus the Son. And we're going to come back to that at the end tonight. But secondly, the Son's glory is not actually the great end, the great goal. The great goal is the glory of the Father. Notice John 17 verse 1. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. What's Jesus' ultimate goal? To glorify the Father so that the Son may glorify you. So there's our third picture. The Father is glorified by the Son and the Spirit, because the Spirit is seeking to glorify the Son. So, what is God like? And frankly, why does it matter? Well, let's deal with why it matters first. Let me say this, and then we're going to have a break. If God exists... And if God is who the Christian Bible says he is, then God is the ultimate reality. 
right? If God exists and if he is who the Bible says he is, then God is the ultimate reality. Everything else, this, this, I won't hit it so hard, you, me, we are all real and dependent. We are all dependent on him. So imagine going through life with a massive, great, big blind spot. Not back there where I can't see it, right? But I'm talking about, say you had a blind spot right in the centre. And not like that, but say it was like that big. Just imagine, black. That's all black. And what you can see is that. Okay? No worries. And around you go and bang! Oh, that was dangerous. But um, <laughs> I didn't hit it. It's okay. But can you imagine what that would be like? A big black... And all you've got is the edges. And you're going through life. And you think, no, see, that's going to be useless, isn't it? Because you're not going to see reality. Whatever you see, it might be real, but it, your perception of it is going to be so skewed that you won't really make proper sense of things because the centre is missing. The great big centre. If God exists and he is who the Bible says he is, then he is ultimate reality. And if you are going through life not knowing him, then it is a skewed life that you are trying to live. You are going to be out of kilter with reality. That's why knowing who God is really matters. The second reason it really matters is because God has actually revealed himself for a purpose. He wants you to know him. He doesn't want you to have that big blind spot in your life. And because he wants you to know him and be able to respond to him in a way that recognises who he is for, in all his glory. So just to ignore what he's revealed about himself, that's not just blinkered, it actually misses the whole point. He's revealed himself so that you can be in relationship with him. I've got a quote here from Tom Smale, and I think he puts it well. He says, The gospel is about knowing God as he is. The gospel offers us not just knowledge of our own situation and of God's gracious and abundant provision for us, but a knowledge of God himself. It is not a matter of us storming the heavens to invade his secrets. Rather, he himself has come into our human world and shown himself to us and invited us to know him as he eternally is. That's why it matters. And we're going to have a break for two minutes and then we'll come back and see what he's like. We've pushed out from shore in our theological boat. We've paddled through the sort of chop near the shore and now I tell you we are about to hit the deep water. We are going off the edge of the continental shelf and here it goes. Now we're not going to go out for too long because I don't want you to get freaked out but we're going to go out there for a little while and then we're going to come back and we're going to just cruise some nice waves in all the way in, alright? That's what we're planning to do. Here we go. So what is God like? 
You can see it there in your outline. Given what we've seen so far, you've done a lot of hard work trying to get through all that stuff. Here you go. What you've seen so far is this. Within God himself, there is a unity and a distinction. Within God himself, there is a distinction in person. You might like to fill that in. There is a distinction in person. That is, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all distinct. You cannot substitute one for the other. It was not the Father who was incarnate. It was the Son. It was not the Son who was poured out on believers. It was the Spirit and so on. They are distinct persons. Now, when I say persons, I don't mean human beings. The Lord Jesus is an incarnate human being, but the Father and the Spirit are not. But I guess what I mean is that they are distinct, distinguishable realities who operate in personable ways. The personhood of the Son is very easy to see. The personhood of the Father you can see, I think, too, in the Gospel accounts. The Spirit, though, too, has his own personhood. You can see it there on your page. In Acts 13, verse 2, the Spirit speaks. In Acts 8, 39, the Spirit snatches someone away. So there's a profound distinction within God of Father, Son, and Spirit. But also there is a profound unity. There is a unity, first of all, in purpose. We saw this as we looked through the events of the gospel. Father, Son, and Spirit are constantly working towards the same goal, even if they have distinct roles. There's a unity of purpose. There's, secondly, there's a unity of action. Did you notice? Father, Son, and Spirit always seem to be working together. You never get just one working. The Father is, was always at work through the Son by His Spirit. The Spirit is always glorifying the Son who is ruling over all things until He hands all things back to the Father. What you observe is that whilst Father, Son and Spirit are all distinct, they are never separate. They are distinct but never separate. They always act together. Whether it's in revelation or salvation or sanctification or glorification, Father, Son and Spirit are united in action. Find me one Christian doctrine that doesn't involve God as Father, Son and Spirit. I'll buy you a coffee. Actually, I'll just make you one for free. But anyway. Thirdly, they are united, and this is the most profound, they are united in being. There is a unity of being between the Father, Son and Spirit. In John 1... The pre-incarnate Jesus is the Word who was with God and the Word who was God. There's a unity in being. He was with God but also was God. Similarly, we saw in Romans 8 that if you have the Spirit in you, then Christ is in you. There's a unity of being that enables Paul to say that. So how do you hold together this distinction of persons but profound unity in purpose, action and being? Well, that's the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. Now, often when you say Trinity, Christians feel intimidated and ignorant. And that is a terrible, terrible tragedy. Because as one theologian put it, the doctrine of the Trinity is the glory of the Christian religion. 
you go, oh, really? No, surely it's a bit more like a very complicated appendix that I'm not really going to read for my essay. <laughs> the doctrine of the Trinity is the glory of the Christian religion. Why? Because the doctrine of the Trinity is the Christian answer to the most basic and important of questions. Who is God? This is who God has revealed himself to be. He is Father, Son and Spirit, one God in three persons. And there is no more glorious reality than God himself, Father, Son and Spirit. There is no more glorious activity than contemplating God as he has revealed himself as Father, Son and Spirit. You think a sunset's glorious? You think love is glorious? You think victory on the footy field is glorious? You think a perfect double shot macchiato is glorious? It all pales. It just, it's almost blasphemy to put them in the same paragraph. Like, it all pales compared to the glory of God. Father, Son and Spirit, one God, three persons. I want you to be excited by God. Which means I want you to be excited about who he is. He is Trinity. Try unity. Father, Son and Spirit, one God in three persons. Well, that's distinction and unity. Then we can ask, how are the three related to each other in the one being of God? Well, the, alter- the eternal relationships are revealed in the gospel story. This is, uh, like this, you can say it, but this is profound. What's God like? His Father, Son and Spirit, how do they relate? What, like, well, I'll tell you, look, read the gospels. You read the gospel narrative, you see the eternal relationships lived out. That's important, see, because what you see in the Gospels, what you see in history is a true insight into how God is in himself. God's not pretending to be Father, Son and Spirit. When you see Father, Son and Spirit interact, you are getting God, the real genuine article. He's not something else hidden behind that. If he was, then we've got a major problem because God says he's a God of truth. And he says he's revealed himself to us. And if he's actually something else, if he's some other fourth reality behind it, then, then we can't trust him. So what you see in the gospel interactions between Father, Son and Spirit, that is how God is in all eternity. So what I mean is the Father is always the Father who loves the Son and seeks the Son's glory, always, for all eternity. The Spirit is always the Spirit of the Father and the Son who is seeking to bring glory to the Son. Before there was even the creation of the world, this is the nature of God. The Son always loves the Father and is obedient to the Father in all eternity. It was an incredibly significant achievement of the early Christians to put the biblical material that we've looked at together into this so-called doctrine of the Trinity, which really was just their answer to what's God like? What, what do you Christians say this God is like? And it took actually a long time for consensus to be reached on how to articulate these relationships. 
And you can see part of their conclusion there on your book there in the Nicene Creed of 381 AD. This is a really significant achievement to work out a way to articulate these realities. Let me just read part of it to you. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. For us human beings and our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. See, they're trying to capture here not just the unity and distinction, but the relationships between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The particular relation between the Father and the Son is that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. Begetting is what fathers do. They beget children. But God the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. That is, there wasn't ever a particular moment in time where the Son was begot, begat. It's complicated here. Uh, where the Son was begat. No, because there was never a time when the Son wasn't. There was never a time when there was just the Father. But they have this relationship in all eternity. Hence, the Son is eternally begotten in this relationship of being a Son to the Father. And the creed moves on to the Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. So they're trying to emphasise the divinity, the godness of the Holy Spirit. He's to be worshipped and glorified with the Father and the Son because he is fully God. But the relationship between Father and the Spirit is different to that between the Father and the Son. See, with the Spirit, it's not begottenness. With the Spirit, it's proceeding. The Spirit proceeds from the Father. It's picking up that language we saw earlier in John 14 of the Father sending the Spirit. As the Spirit, the breath, proceeds from the Father. That actually brings us to a particular controversy in church history, which is uh, the filioque. Now, you'll notice, did you notice there in brackets, after who proceeds from the Father, in brackets it says, and the Son. Um, because you see there, I'll try to represent it in the diagram, in the original Creed of 381, it just had who proceeds from the Father, but a massive split in the church, Christian church, happened around 1000 AD, between the so-called Eastern churches, which today are represented by the Orthodox churches, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, so on, who maintained the original creed, who proceeds from the Father. A split happened from the Western churches, which at the time was the Roman Catholic Church, out of which later came the Protestant churches, who added, proceeds from the Father and the Son, which in Latin, and the Son, is filioque. Now, such was the fight that erupted between the Eastern churches and the Western churches that they split, and they're still split today. Well, who's right, east or west? Well, you can sort of see why the Western churches added and the Son. Even in the passages we looked at, they teach Jesus had a role in the sending of the Spirit. 
But even there we saw it was, the father and the son didn't have equivalent roles, did they? So I sort of get also the Eastern objection when you just say from the father and the son, it just places, it makes them two equal, doing the same things. Maybe it elevates the son too much. So just as a possibility, and this is the height of arrogance, isn't it? But just as a possibility, maybe the diagram on the page better represents the relationships that we've seen revealed in the gospel story even better. It's not my diagram, others have proposed it. There you have that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father through the Spirit. So that's trying to capture the Spirit's role that we saw in the activity of the Son, all the activity of the Son. And the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father through the Son, which I think captures a bit better the relationship between the Father and the Son in the sending of the Spirit. Okay, well, that's our sort of bit of journey out in the deep waters of Trinitarian theology. I want to say it's glorious out here, right? It's glorious out here. Do not be afraid. Love it, because this is who God is. This is who your God is. Let's head back into shore, and let's catch some nice waves. Okay, some important implications then for understanding the Spirit. First of all, just two, I've got two implications. First is this. The Spirit is distinct from, but never separate from, the Father and the Son. Now, we saw that there because we know that God, Father, Son and Spirit are distinct but never separate. They never act separately. So applying that to the Spirit, the Spirit is distinct from, but never separate from, the Father and the Son. There's two mistakes that Christians make when they don't get this truth. Oops, number one, is over-separating the Spirit and Jesus. See, since God is one, therefore the Spirit's never going to act separately to the Father and the Son. They're always acting together, but people often over-separate Jesus and the Spirit. Now understand, what I'm about to do now are caricatures. I'm overstating it somewhat so that I offend everybody. On the left of your page are the Word guys. These guys are fully committed to Jesus as Lord. They love the Bible as the Word of God. But the Spirit doesn't seem to get much of a look in. The person and work of the Spirit's not really understood, not really appreciated, and almost certainly never looked for apart from maybe conversion. No, apart from certainly from conversion. The danger with word guys like this is that they end up cold and cerebral. There's no warmth, no affection in their faith. On the right, you've got the spirit dudes. Now, there are several types of spirit dudes there's, uh, who are quite different to each other. The first is the theologically liberal spirit dude who sees in all the religions of the world the working of the divine spirit. And Jesus, because of his offensive uh, exclusivity, is sort of pushed to one side. The real heart of these theological liberal spirit dudes is, the heart of their theology is this sense that there is a universal divine spirit moving in all religions, leading us all to the one great truth by different paths. Universalism. 
May I say, Christianity like this is a complete misnomer and a complete disaster. It's not Christ. It's not Christianity. It's not Christian. Second type of uh, spirit dude is very different to that. Second type of spirit dude is um, characterised maybe as a second blessing Pentecostal spirit dude who sees Jesus and the Spirit as two very separate experiences. And often the second experience of maybe the, the Spirit coming in fullness is the really exciting one. So if the danger with word guys is that they end up cold and cerebral, the danger with spirit dudes is that they end up Christless, Christless and crazy. Priceless and crazy. They're not moored. They're not moored necessarily in the word. They're caricatures. I'm putting it out there and you can all take offence at me later. What we need to remember is that the spirit and word are always together. Spirit and the word are always together. Just one verse from Zechariah 7 verse 12. They, Israel that is, made their hearts adamant in order not to hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. The word always comes through the spirit. You can't just have word. Word comes through the spirit. And the spirit speaks through the word. So we have to make sure that we don't try to prize apart what God has actually welded together. And uh, Steve Chong is going to help us think a bit more about that, I think, on Thursday morning. Uh, Tom Smale's counsel here I think is helpful. A one-sided absorption in dramatic spiritual experiences can easily obscure the fact that the purpose of the Spirit's coming is to relate us to the Father and the Son. Against that danger, a good Trinitarian theology can act as a necessary and valuable corrective. So as we talk about this Spirit this week, and frankly beyond this week, whenever you're thinking about the Holy Spirit, you have to remember your Trinitarian theology. Because when you're talking about the Spirit, you're talking about God. And you need to remember who He is, Father, Son and Spirit, distinct but never separate from each other. One God, three persons. But there's a second mistake we can make here as well. Oops, number two, under-distinguishing the Spirit and Jesus. Quite possibly, this is the problem that many of us in the room tonight have. This problem happens when we fail to clearly understand the different persons of the Spirit and the Son, and the Father for that matter. And because we're not very clear on the work of the Spirit or the Son today, we just end up in this muddle. Well, that, frankly, that's why we're having this conference, to try to clear up the muddle. So we can understand God better, understand who He is and what He's done, and thereby give Him more glory for who He is, what He's done, and what He's doing. Well, that's the first implication. The second big implication is this. The Spirit's fundamentally self-effacing work. The Spirit glorifies another. Graham Cole, in a really helpful book that I think is over on the bookstore, says this. He says, Christology, the study of Christ, of Jesus, Christology is at the centre, not pneumatology. Paradoxically, in a world of self-promotion, the magnificence of the Spirit lies not in self-display, but in self-abnegation, that is, self-denial. 
the magnificence of the Spirit lies in this self-effacement or divine selflessness. For this reason, believers are rightly called Christians, not Numians. And then Tom Smale again. There is a way, he says, of concentrating on the Holy Spirit that is grieving to the Spirit. Because he has come not to draw our attention to himself, but to forge our relationship to the Father and the Son. A Spirit who offers us experience of himself and his gifts as the central focus of our Christian lives is not the Holy Spirit of the New Testament. See, we have done a very dangerous thing in the EU. We're holding a conference on the Holy Spirit. We could actually end up doing the very thing that the Spirit doesn't want us to do, which is focus on Him. I know that as I've been putting these talks together, I've had this as a concern of mine. How, in talking so much about the Spirit, am I actually going to make sure that our focus is on Jesus? Because that is what the Spirit wants us to do. It's not, though, just having a focus on Jesus. As Tom Smale said in the earlier quote, the purpose of the Spirit's coming is actually to relate you to the Father and the Son, to give you life, not just knowledge. But that has to wait for tomorrow night. But tonight, I just want you to know the magnificence of God. God as he is in himself, as Father, Son and Spirit, one God, undivided unity, but three distinct persons in eternal relationship of selflessness, other person-centeredness, is the very nature of God. That is a glory to behold. So let me lead us in prayer. Father of heaven, whose love profound a ransom for our souls has found, before your throne we sinners bend, to us your pardoning love extend. Almighty Son, incarnate Word, our prophet, priest, redeemer and Lord, before your throne we sinners bend, to us your saving grace extend. Eternal Spirit, by whose breath the soul is raised from sin and death, before your throne we sinners bend, to us your quickening power extend. Almighty Father, Spirit, Son, mysterious Godhead, three in one, before your throne we sinners bend, grace, pardon, life, to us please extend. Amen.